Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Subnet Show. I'm Gabriel Cardona. Connor has the evening off tonight because he's going to be spending some time with his family. So it's just myself, and I'm joined by our very, very special guest, Michael Kaplan. Michael Kaplan is an engineer at Ava Labs, and he is the lead of the Bridge team. And there is just so much incredibly exciting stuff that recently happened with a huge release from his team. So we wanted to take this opportunity to bring him onto the show and get to know him a little bit better and hear about his vision. So how's it going, Michael? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Gabriel. Thanks for having me. Doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing good. So I really do appreciate the time. It's Friday uh, evening for Michael, so I just want to be super respectful of his time. And again, just express gratitude because I know you're incredibly busy. Everybody is. We are... Um, we just started what is known as Avalanche Rush. So there is a just a absolute crazy amount of energy happening um, on our team and in our ecosystem and tons of new projects onboarding. And um, out of my whole career, this is one of the most exciting and eventful times I've ever had. So um, again, I know you're incredibly busy. And so um, just wanted to bring you on and get a chance to kind of uh, take a deep dive on your past sort of your crypto journey and your crypto vision and then uh, just get a sense of where you see all this playing out Definitely. so so yeah so i think a good place to start would be um give me a sense of you know wh where did you grow up and kind of how did you get into computer science and let's let's start at the very beginning sure yeah uh so i first got into cs when i took ap computer science in high school um then kind of stumbled into CS as a major at Cornell. Um, so a lot of our uh, team has roots somewhere at Cornell, um, obviously yeah. because of Goon and Kevin. Um, we're a bit diversified now, which is a good thing. Um, I originally was intending to be a biological engineering major at Cornell, um, but found myself doing my CS homework. All engineering majors need to take <laughs> uh, a couple CS courses. And I found myself doing that homework to procrastinate other work. Um, sure. Like maybe I should just have only this work and that, that would be a happy life. So, so uh, you said you started in high school? Yeah, yeah. My senior year of high school is my uh, first time coding. Um, and what was, language and what platform? How did that, how did that work? Uh, so that was uh, AP Computer Science. It was Java, um, JVM based. Um, and then continued with Java first, um, as well as MATLAB, Python, um, C++, uh, at Cornell. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, after Cornell, I was then at DraftKings um, for about a year and a half, and they I was mostly developing in C Sharp then, um, and now at Ava Labs back in C++ and Golang is the newest one. So, so kind of all, all over the place in terms of languages. Yeah, well, it's, it didn't seem like there was too much web stuff in there. I didn't hear any JavaScript or anything like that, right? No, mostly back end, yeah. Um, so how did you in high school... Uh, what was your motivation for doing programming as a senior? How did that end up? Yeah, um, so I always loved math um, and science, and it kind of was just a natural progression of that. Um, I was lucky enough to go to a public school that offered AP Comp Sci, um, and it was a pretty small class at the time. Like, not many people took it, um, but I met with the teacher before enrolling, and it sounded like a cool opportunity. Um, and it being my senior year is a little bit of kind of low stakes, just testing out the waters before going to college. Um, but I mean, I remember 
the final like month of that course, they just kind of had open-ended projects and they didn't really expect much. Of course, it's like most people's first programming course. Sure. Um, and I was making a battleship, um, <laughs> a battleship program, which was like just printing out in uh, ASCII on the screen, which uh, nice. I remember like staying up late at night, like, no, I got to get this to display perfectly. <laughs> Um, and then built a computer to actually play against and to see how good I could get the computer to um, compete against me. So that was definitely the the start of my interest there. Did you have um, like family, parents, brother, sister, anybody else who was in computer science? Nope, uh, I'm actually the only one. I have an older brother. Um, he just graduated from law school. Um, and my right. sister just got her PhD in psychology, actually. Um, wow. So all over the place. Uh, I'm the only one without an advanced degree. <laughs> uh, nice work to your parents. That sounds like they got some pretty successful kids. Okay, so that's pretty cool. So you were in high school and you got turned on to um, computer science pretty early based on your own passion. You started studying the JVM in high school. That's that's pretty intense. So that's nice. Um what were the sort of uh, steps that led you from doing that to Cornell? Uh, so Cornell was just kind of broadly appealing to me as a engineering school. Um, both, both of my parents went to Ithaca College. Okay. Um, so I had been in Ithaca, loved the area, mm -hmm. um, the gorges, the restaurants, the people. Um, mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to go into engineering, but didn't really know what type of engineering I wanted to go into. Um, and Cornell had a huge offering of different engineering majors. So it kind of felt like a win-win, a no matter what I ended up finding as my passion, they would kind of have a, a strong program for me there. And um, so you knew you wanted to be an engineer because you like math and science, is that why? Yeah, exactly. Got it. And were your parents encouraging or like, were they kind of open-ended, do whatever you want? How, how did they feel about it? Uh, they were just always supportive, very much do whatever you want to. Um, sure. They definitely were happy I ended up in Ithaca though. Uh, gave them a good excuse to come visit where they went to college <laughs> multiple times a year. So nice. they, uh, they didn't push Cornell, but they were like, yeah, you should, you should do that. That sounds good to us. Got it. So um, have you played around with any other JVM languages like Kotlin or are you familiar with any other stuff? Uh, a little bit of Scala, um, mm -hmm. but not, not particularly. Um, I mostly just for coursework. Um, since graduating, I haven't written a line of Java. So, What did you think of Scala? Uh, it's really good at specific tasks. And I think when you know what those specific tasks are and how to uh, apply it, it's a perfect tool. Um, I'm not super knowledgeable there myself, though. So um, I definitely don't leverage it too much nowadays. Got it. OK. So you ended up at Cornell. What when did uh, what was your first year at Cornell? Uh, 2014, the fall of 2014. Okay. That's when I started. Yeah, then I graduated in 2018. Okay, so you were there for four years. Got it. And what did you get a degree in? Uh, computer science. Very cool, man. That's awesome. Um, congratulations. I know that was no small feat. I'm sure graduating from Cornell is challenging. Yeah, it was a uh, definitely a challenging but rewarding four years so i'd say do you um is anybody on our team right now somebody you went to school with yeah uh so i knew of steven uh Budolf and dan lane um at cornell we weren't super close but we definitely knew each other 
Um, we took a few of the same classes. Uh, Steven and I actually were both in the blockchain course uh, that Goon taught. Uh, that was spring of 2018, um, which was our first, uh, the first time that we really met. Um, and then when I came to interview at Ava Labs, uh, he was there. I was like, oh, I remember you. <laughs> um, uh -huh. And now he's, of course, the lead architect behind Avalanche Go. And so, absolute uh, legend. Very Steve. cool story. Yeah. So I wonder, I ask this question often. Um, I think I've asked it of everybody so far. What was your, well, I guess, talk me into how did you meet Goon and ultimately come to work with Goon at Cornell? Yeah. Um, so I guess that goes back to how I stumbled into crypto. Um, yeah, let's hear that story. It was my junior year of school. Um, my dad actually was the one um, who had gotten into Bitcoin and Ethereum first and doesn't have a technical background, but uh, understood it enough to understand its benefits and understand that it is very interesting technically. That's so um, cool. That's so cool and so he yeah. kind of yeah. offered it up to me as like, hey, like, I, I don't know how this works, but it seems like it's something that you would know how it works. And it seems like a really cool field that's just starting. Um, so yeah, it's my dad who originally um, kind of pointed it out to me. Um, mm -hmm. So then I was researching a bit to try to understand, to try to see if I could understand how Bitcoin worked. Um, and of course, then every other paper I was reading at that point was by some guy named Emin Goon Searer. And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I Google him. I was like, oh, okay. So he's at Cornell. So that's a, a good start. Uh, nice. And then I checked the next semester, I was taking operating systems and he was uh, in line to be the professor for my OS course. Um, so OS was the first time that I met Goon. Um, that was uh, a really interesting experience because it was probably a 350 person lecture since um, it's part of the core curriculum. Um, so it's in this huge, huge lecture hall. The first day, Goon makes it clear, no laptops open during class, wow. uh, no phones out. And mm -hmm. uh, like he just like asked that point blank of everyone was like, this is what I'm expecting of, of you. Uh, mm -hmm. Here's what you can expect of me. Sure. And of course, a lot of professors ask that, and then it kind of tails off. Um, but the second lecture, someone <laughs> maybe missed the first one, or mm. uh, I'm not sure, but someone had their laptop open close to the back of this big auditorium. Mm -hmm. And I wish I remembered their name, but I don't remember their name. <laughs> but Goon called them out by name. It's like, hey, put your laptop away. And by by their first name, uh, I, I don't remember what it is now, but everyone was just shocked that he knew this person's <laughs> name. I'm not sure if he planted someone there or, or what, <laughs> but he definitely uh, commanded everyone's attention very quickly at the start of that semester. Um, yeah, so I always, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, he, he ended up learning most of the people's names in the class um, just from interacting, which was, uh, I, I remember that, that it was particularly impressive in such a big lecture. Sure. Yeah. Goon has like, my perception of Goon is that he has one of the most laser sharp intellects of anybody that I have personally worked with in my career. He is absolutely, you can tell he's been a professor at an Ivy League school for a long time because he's able just to cut through any hand waving or any bull crap and immediately cut right to the heart of whatever you're trying to say or trying to hand wave. He's able to see right to the truth of what you're actually trying to say. So what I often, what I, I've asked Stephen and asked Dan and asked Connor, what was your like your blink um, instinct or your blink intuition or impression of Goon like your very first 
very first time you met him? Yeah, I think uh, the very first time, or maybe second time, I guess, that I met him uh, would be the the one I just described there was that he clearly had full command of mm -hmm. exactly what he was teaching, but also super ready to engage anybody um, coming in with an open mind, no matter where yeah. your knowledge level was at, um, and was able to explain things in such a way that you understood and he would make sure that you understood um, no matter what uh, knowledge level you were coming in at. Um, and he really kind of commanded the respect of everyone in the room that second day when he called someone out in the back row for having their laptop out during class. Um, and it's kind of, he's always lived up to that in terms of when he's talking, you, you want to be listening. Um, and when you're talking, you can tell that he's listening to you. And uh, yeah, absolutely. It's very much uh, a circular feedback loop there. And how did you end up getting um, involved in, you know, blockchain and other labs? Yeah, uh, great question. So it was at the end of OS then, um, the fall, at the end of that semester, um, right before winter break. Um, and uh, the course had just wrapped up um, and Goon recommended if, uh, to, I think it was in office hours actually. He's like, oh, I forgot to mention in class, I'm starting this blockchain course. If anyone's interested, it's going to be really cool. It's graduate level course. Um, nice. I don't have the curriculum down yet, but we're just going to read papers and talk about them and um, see like how how much of the space we can cover um, nice. throughout the spring semester. Um, and that that was enough for me to immediately sign up for that. Um, this blockchain. year, you're saying this was when 2016 or what year was this? 2018. It's spring 2018 then, um, and it was actually the first time. Uh, that blockchain course was offered at Cornell. Um, so Goon was teaching it, um, and there was really no set curriculum other than the papers he would choose for each class. Got it. So 2018 was around the time that the Avalanche white paper dropped. Is that correct? The Team Rocket? Uh, yep. Yep, exactly. Uh, which was, in retrospect, really interesting because he was teaching the course, teaching the blockchain course in the spring. Um, and many times he'd be like running into lecture, uh, or I guess it wasn't a lecture, it's more of a discussion at that point, but running into the class um, a couple minutes late, clearly out of breath, and <laughs> like clearly was doing a million things at once, uh, and didn't mention specifically, he, he mentioned, he alluded to that he was working on something cool that hadn't been published yet, uh, but nice. didn't um, say anything more than that. Um, so I guess that's when he was uh, communicating with Team Rocket. Um, and then it was the day after the final presentations um, for that course when the Avalanche paper dropped. The um, day after? The day after, yeah. Amazing. Um, which, of course, then like everyone put it together. It's like, oh, this was this is what he was involved with. Sure. What did you do for your final? Uh, I was actually working on an SGX-related project. Um, so we haven't talked about SGX yet, but that's the um, Intel technology that we use to develop the new Avalanche Bridge. Um, and I was working on a project building out a prototype um, exchange using Intel SGX. Um, and that's kind of when we first were piecing together how you could leverage SGX um, within the crypto space, uh, within the blockchain space um, to get some really unique properties. Sure. And so how did you, how did you, I guess, how did you get introduced to SGX and what made you resonate with it so much that you ultimately did your senior project on that? 
or your final project, I should say. Yeah, uh, so the first time I heard about it was in the paper called Town Crier, I believe, um, which is a paper about on-chain on data feeds, um, authenticated yeah. on-chain data feeds, kind of what Chainlink is serving as today, although Chainlink, sure. I don't believe, uses SGX. Um, but people at Cornell were involved in writing Town Crier, um, and it basically outlined a way where you could get verified real-world data on to Ethereum um, using SGX. Um, did they call it oracles at the time or no? Did they call it what? Sorry. Was, uh, was it already considered oracles? Was that term being thrown around? Uh, yeah, I think they did um, call some portion of the system was called an oracle, yeah. Um, and there was also a few other SGX papers. Um, Tesseract, I think, is one um, that outlined a um, architecture where you could build an exchange using SGX, uh, a crypto exchange using SGX. Um, so no one had really implemented it yet. So that was why we uh, kind of picked it up with the project for that course. Got it. And so um, so then it's, you've been working with SGX now for, I guess it sounds like three or four years at least? Uh, not quite. So I worked on it uh, I, I used it anyway in that course in spring 2018 um, and then picked it up again um, when I joined Ava Labs and that was in September of 2019. Um, so there's a, a little over a year and a half there when I was working in Boston for DraftKings. Got it. And what were you doing there? Uh, I was on their identity team. Um, so it managed KYC, identity verification, geolocation, um, basically all their compliance software. Um, I was uh, a member of that team, which was a really cool, great learning opportunity. Um, they have a huge user base, obviously, and I'm a huge football fan. Um, so it was a perfect first job, I'd say. What tech stack? Uh, they mostly use .NET services, um, so C Sharp, uh, AWS. Um, yep. And do you do you like the Windows stack, or do you like uh, more like the Linux type stack? I find that I like whatever I end up using, um, which isn't a bad thing, um, but maybe I, I haven't exposed myself to all of them enough. Um, at the time, I feel like DraftKings had figured out how to build out that stack really nicely um, and had reached the level of maturity as a company where they had good developer tools and onboarding materials um, and everything like that. Um, but now that I'm I've been working in C++ for almost two years now, um, and Golang. I think both of those are also um, very, very good languages. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm spacing on his last name, but if I remember correctly, the creator of C Sharp and .NET, isn't his name Anders something? I think so, Microsoft. Yeah, I believe he's the same guy who led the team which created TypeScript, if I remember correctly, how that all played out. That sounds correct, yep. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me, just as a sort of a side note, so whenever I first started um, doing web development, it was probably around 2010, 2011. And at the time, um, Microsoft was notoriously like hated across the entire sort of web space because of um, the ways like Netscape Navigator ultimately fought against Internet Explorer. And the Netscape Navigator got acquired by AOL, I believe. Is that correct? 
I, I think Netscape ended up at AOL. And then um, Internet Explorer ended up having like 99% of the market share. So the very first job I ever had ever right out of college was building a internal website for Walmart. So I was doing like contracting work, building a big uh, internal kind of like portal for Walmart employees. And um, I guess because the uh, Walmart had signed like a multi-year big money deal with Microsoft to where all of the project managers had to have a certain laptop and we had to target Internet Explorer 6. And so Internet Explorer 6 may be before your time, but anybody out there who's a web developer who was around at that time knows that Internet Explorer 6 was notorious for being like this absolute kludge. And um, a lot of people consider that it sort of held back the web for a long time. And there was this really nightmare scenario where you had to create like one version of the, your website that worked on standards compliant type browsers like Firefox and emerging Safari. And then you would have to create another one that had all of these IE uh, APIs. And it's interesting to me that considering the way I viewed uh, Microsoft whenever I first started my career to, where, to the way I view them now, they really have done a full, you know, sort of like they, they, they switched their game up completely to where now they help drive the HTML5 standards body. Um, the Edge browser and the latest versions of Internet Explorer have like super, super good uh, standards compliance. They released TypeScript, which to me is absolutely critical. <clears throat> if you're a JavaScript developer, you should be a TypeScript developer. I've been saying this for years. I've worked with uh, full time with TypeScript now for about three and a half years. It's such a big leap forward. You know, perhaps you don't appreciate it, although you maybe you have some Python experience, but like I approach programming from a different angle than yourself, right? You've done a lot of C sharp and a lot of super powerful languages. Myself, I started out doing like straight up web development. So HTML, CSS, even jQuery, even before I got to JavaScript, right? So I started at a very, very high level. And so again, this may, not, this may be super obvious to you because of the direction you came from, but having worked with a big chunk of my career with, with uh, no types, like straight up using JavaScript to using TypeScript. It is such a radical leap forward. And uh, it's been a universal experience of mine. Every single time you port a JavaScript app to a TypeScript app, you will find bugs simply because the language is so fluent that it'll cast a string to a number and you won't even be aware of it that you've got that bug in your code. But JavaScript does the right thing for you in most cases. And so again, to kind of steer back to what I was saying, um, Microsoft has improved their game so much to, that today, like nearly all of the tools I use in my day-to-day -day workflow from VS Code to TypeScript um, are all emerging from uh, Microsoft. And to me, that's just very, very interesting. And so I kind of wanted to give a shout out there. So um, whenever you... And uh, just to add on to that, actually, also Azure uh, is... Oh quickly caught on as well. We, we use that um, for their SGX integrations. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's go down that rabbit hole a little bit. So to me, I kind of think of there's like three clouds that I myself have played around with. I've played around with Azure, I've played around with AWS, and I've played around with G Cloud. Uh, what are your thoughts in that space? Do you have a preference? Could you just give or take all three? Are they, are they replaceable? Is there something that absolutely rules about one that you can't replace? What do you think about those clouds? Uh, so I don't have any experience with Google Cloud, um, okay. but I will say that 
both AWS and Azure seem to always fit my needs, um, mm -hmm. which admittedly are, are pretty limited for any side projects that I'm doing. Um, so I think they uh, both have their, well, I, I think Azure is particularly good for launching SGX applications right now. Um, mm -hmm. AWS has their Nitro support, um, which is also in the trusted execution environment zone. Um, mm -hmm. But we were specifically looking for SGX support, which Azure offered us. Um, so beyond that, I think they they probably have most of the similar capabilities. Um, it's just a matter of what you're comfortable with and uh, how easy it is to get exactly what you're looking for set up, tuned correctly, and of course uh, secured. Sure. Yeah. So definitely, there's feature parity, but then you kind of come to just feel at home and speak a certain language. You become idio yeah, you become idiomatic. So I'm wondering, like, what about Azure and SGX? Is there any? Is there some special sauce there that makes the support there better? Did Intel focus on it earlier? Like, why is SGX and Azure? Uh, it's just what Azure decided to to offer. Um, mm -hmm. So SGX, you need the actual chip on the machine. So it's more difficult to virtualize um, in terms of um, having virtual machines on, on within data centers. So um, it's definitely more um, strict criteria for hardware that you're looking to run your applications on. Um, and AWS, I think, is putting together their own solution that I actually haven't had time to play around with yet. Uh, but Azure had the out-of-the-box SGX support. Yeah, so can you tell us about SGX? What exactly is SGX? How does it work? And what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, uh, so SGX is trustless, or sorry, trusted execution environment um, that Intel has put together. Um, and it's really, I think, technology that hasn't quite caught on yet in terms of its broader use. Um, it is able, you're able to run a program within an SGX enclave. Um, and other people can attest that you run, ran that version of a specific version of the program correctly within a tamper-proof enclave. Um, so, really, allowing this remote attestation is the most powerful aspect of SGX. That um, somewhere, someone not at the machine that's running the code is able to verify that the code is running correctly on that machine um, down to the hardware level. Um, and it also has a lot of great primitives in terms of um, encryption and such, um, where you can get really nice um, privacy properties out of it. Um, so how, how does the remote attestation work exactly? Uh, probably so super high level. Yeah, super high level, whatever you can. Whatever yeah, you can it's um, mostly just a cryptographic protocol back and forth. Um, there are a couple different versions of it. One relies on the Intel attestation service. Uh, so you do have to rely on trusting Intel that um, they attested to the enclave and that they actually recognize the serial number of that enclave. Um, and then there's DCAP, which is data center attestation primitives, uh, where you actually get to take Intel out of that loop. Um, so that's kind of the next generation. Um, but you get, uh, so there's a Diffie-Hellman key exchange as part of the um, attestation protocol, um, which for those not familiar, basically me and Gabriel perform a Diffie-Hellman key exchange. And as a result, we have an end-to-end -end encrypted channel um, that no one else is able to see. Um, and then you can, you're can you able to exchange secrets in such a way 
um, and the Enclave is able to sign messages in such a way um, that you can get cryptographic proof that the Enclave is running that exact version of the code identified by its hash. Um, and that it's a valid Enclave, of course. Got it. So um, were you, I don't remember, I know that, that our original AE bridge was built on ChainSafe's ChainBridge technology. Were you involved with that project or were you hands off? No, I was not actually. Um, I wasn't involved in that at all until the very end when we were migrating it over to uh, our new bridge. Um, Got it. But um, a lot of the AEB uh, foundation was within smart contracts um, on Ethereum and on Avalanche. And then it relied on the relayers um, as I believe a three of five um, relayers in a multi-sig on the smart contracts. Um, it's not an exact corollary, but it's close enough to think of the Enclave then as including a lot of that smart contract code, um, which then makes it much, it's much faster and it's much less expensive to run code within a single Enclave than it is to run, uh, to invoke a smart contract. Um, because to invoke a smart contract, you need to send a transaction on the Ethereum or Avalanche blockchain that transaction needs to get included within the blockchain. Um, and then all of the nodes in that network replicate that execution, um, which is a super powerful concept in terms of decentralization and trustlessness. Um, but on the exact opposite side, instead of running that code on every node in the network, um, over a thousand nodes on, on Avalanche right now, you can imagine mm -hmm. every single one of them would have to perform that same exact computation. Yeah. Um, or you can do it once inside a single SGX enclave, um, and that enclave can produce a report that it actually did the computation correctly. Um, wow. So it's definitely very different properties, but they uh, kind of get at the same aspect of um, you're able to verify that your code ran correctly. Um, so instead of doing this multi-sig on-chain um, with the AEB bridge, the multi-sig, and, and it's not actually a multi-sig, it's a um, Shamir secret sharing scheme, um, but three out of four of the AB wardens have to approve a transaction in order for the enclave to sign it, um, mm -hmm. instead of three of five ward, uh, three of five AEB relayers sending a transaction on chain. Um, so each of those transactions has their own confirmation time, has their own transaction fees, um, right. which add up very quickly, um, and we kind of we're able to cut a lot of that latency and a lot of that cost out by putting that computation within an enclave. And so that's why we say the new AB or the new AB bridge is so much cheaper or more inexpensive, maybe is a better way to say it. I mean, the AE bridge, AEB bridge, specifically what you're saying, right? Instead of having to run all of these smart contract calls, we're instead doing it in this enclave. Is that the exactly. high level? Okay. Yep. Got it. And so how long um have you been working on the AB? So we first, I guess it's kind of a, a tiered question. Um, we first tried to build a SGX bridge last fall, uh, okay. but we built it to the X chain instead of the C chain. Um, so that's the Avalanche virtual machine instead of the EVM. Um, and we actually got that deployed um, and it was working, but um, at the time there's, and, and still today, um, the X chain is really payments focused. Um, sure. And most of the um, DeFi world today exists with on the EBM in terms Absolutely. of being able to 
use these assets within smart contracts, within dApps. Um, and that's when we really kind of went back to the drawing board and said, okay, this X chain bridge is cool. Um, it's great at what it does, but we want something um, that's able to have tokens live on, on the C chain and interact with all of these smart contracts. Um, and so we went back to the drawing board and really came up with the design um, uh, in April of this year. It was Easter Sunday, actually, when we like finally put some of the pieces together, um, designed it so that there's no public-facing API, um, mm -hmm. that the only interactions uh, from a user perspective are sending uh, one simple transfer transaction on Ethereum, and then it kind of goes through the bridge and pops out on Avalanche um, and mm -hmm. vice versa. Um, so we started development, I'd say, mid to late April, um, and have been working on it since then. Um, so it's definitely a, a rush to to get the initial version in place and then to get it audited and fully tested. Um, and then we launched um, at the end of July there. Um, there's a few weeks where it's like, okay, maybe next week, maybe next week. <laughs> I've been on projects, so it's the same where uh, yeah. you're getting close to the finish line and you think you can push like just a few more days to get there, uh, mm -hmm. but it's kind of elusive. Um, but we finally were able to, to get it out uh, at the end of July. So then if you, um, how long did you spend on the AVM version of it? Uh, that I don't really remember. Probably a month, uh, maybe two months. Uh, uh, we were working on it kind of in the background while we were also working on other projects at the time. Um, there's also a lot of overhead in actually making it trustless. Um, we never actually were able to take those steps to make the exchange version uh, fully trustless deployment. Um, so I, uh, I guess we haven't really talked about the AB architecture, but it relies on these warden nodes um, where three out of four wardens have to approve a transaction um, in order for it to be processed. Um, and it turns out to be uh, it turns out to have a lot of overhead actually getting independent third-party wardens. Um, so we have Fulger, uh, B, uh, sorry, we have Aviscan, Beware, uh, and Halborn, the security audit Got company. Um, and they, those companies are each running um, one warden node for us um, and getting them set up and up to speed and coordinating um, to actually do the launch was uh, very exciting, but also took a lot of coordination. And so these are akin to the relayers at a, at a, at a super high level? That's right. And then the overhead is why you said there's a lot of overhead there. Why? Just getting people to take on the responsibility or what exactly is the issue? Yeah, just business and uh, human overhead um, in terms of getting uh, partnerships in place, uh, like approaching those companies, mm -hmm. pitching the project, like this is why you want to be uh, a part of this bridge um, with us and really um, building out that relationship to the point where that they are willing to devote resources to um, the technical aspect of running a warden um, mm -hmm. and getting that all set up. Um, so communicating with those, uh, I mean, great partners. I, I'm, uh, they have been spectacular to work with. Yeah, um, there's just sure. human overhead and kind of pitching and selling the idea uh, to get everyone on board. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's new technology, so I think it's uh, always um, the first few steps of getting traction on a new technology is always uh, a bit challenging. Sure. And so just to give some context there, um, 
in the beginning, there was a huge focus on having all of the integration points with uh, the Avalanche ecosystem and exchanges, for example, to be on the X chain, because the X chain, as he mentioned, is a, a DAG and it's for really for peer to peer payments. When the C chain is a linear linear chain that has total ordering, it's really good for smart contracts. And so initially there was like a business development push to have all of the exchange integration happening with the X chain because that's where um, Avox, the asset was issued. And it just made more sense in the beginning because we were trying to get Avox to, you know, plant that seed and get it to grow. And then it seems like very shortly after that, uh, I think the company came to a realization just how much energy was in the EVM and the C chain. And so since then, there's been a really like a big biz dev shift to now have everybody sort of focus on the integration points being on the C chain as opposed to the X chain or the AVM. And so that's why I kind of asked about, you know, how long did you guys spend on the AVM? And um, one of the questions I got from multiple people, let me see if I can find it real quick, is um, I guess like what what is it, what is to tie it in with you spent some time on the AVM and then ultimately you shifted to the EVM. And this is no longer called the Avalanche Ethereum bridge, the original bridge, which was a lock mint bridge with relayers. And it was based on chain safes, chain bridge technology. Please correct me if I said that wrong. Um, it was called the AEB, the Avalanche Ethereum bridge. And from what I understand, the new one is called the Avalanche bridge. And so clearly we removed the word Ethereum from there. And so one of the questions, and, you know, obviously feel free to skip it if you're just not able to answer it because of biz dev reasons or, you know, it's not public or whatever, but what does interoperability look like in the future for these bridges? How hard will it be to refactor the work you've done now to bridge to the AVM or to bridge to, you know, any one of these other layer one blockchains out there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it depends, I guess, is is the short answer. Sure. Uh, I think we designed the bridge initially um, now to be able to easily integrate with any number of EVM chains, um, be it BSC, Polygon, and the like. Um, okay. We don't have any hard dates on when we would add support for additional networks or what those networks might be, um, but that's certainly a possibility um, in the future. Um, but the SGX component of it um, is in C++. It's not tied to any um, virtual machine in terms of the AVM or the EVM. Um, we can really, um, we have the flexibility to build in new support for new VMs um, mm -hmm. within the Avalanche bridge. Um, and I think that's something that's very powerful as well. We've talked about, um, we kind of sketched out how we could potentially add native Bitcoin support um, and bring Bitcoin over to Avalanche and how that could work, whether it live on the X chain or the C chain or mm -hmm. um, on its own subnet. And, uh, there's there's really um, in within Avalanche, there's so much, uh, so many possibilities for mm -hmm. interoperability and so many uh, possibilities for really uniquely tailored applications. Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to kind of mirror that within the bridge in terms of the future directions that we could go. Um, in terms of what I think interoperability will look like down the road, um, really whatever we make it to be, I think is the, the answer because there's just so many possibilities. Um, sure. And I think interoperability is a, 
really hot topic right now with a bunch of bridges um, coming out. Uh, kind of people see the possibilities of things they can do with their assets on a single network. And then I think a natural step is, okay, can I, what can I do on other networks? Sure. Uh, like I have these crypto assets and I don't want them to just be on Ethereum if I want to take advantage of DeFi on Avalanche or yeah. move over to uh, Matic or whatever you'd like to do. Um, but on some level, I don't think it's entirely necessary. Um, okay. So the virtual machines kind of are what they are right now. I think they'll probably change going forward. Um, but I don't think we need a purely interoperable world where um, you can have a, a DAP deployed across multiple networks and you have seamless interaction between those networks. Um, it's more so I think of it like the virtual machines are akin to, or the, the networks actually are akin to operating systems um, okay. where I don't need all of my applications on Windows to interact flawlessly with my applications that I run on Ubuntu or run on Mac OS. Um, but what you do need is to be able to export a file from those applications that you can use on other other operating systems. Um, so you know, you, you want to be able to move your assets from Ethereum to Avalanche to Matic, and uh, you want to be able to leverage what each chain is good at and what the best offerings are for. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think a lot of the general interoperability um, is a really cool problem, but not something that we strictly need um, right now. Sure. And so how did you kind of jumping back and forth a little bit, but how did you first find out about the Avalanche platform? I guess presumably you said at the end of that one semester, you saw that there was a white paper and then you approached, uh, I guess, in 2019 to join the team. Were you aware of the progress that was happening while you were at, at your other gig? Yeah, I was definitely following along. Um, they had, I think it was May 2019 when there's the first private test net. Um, so I definitely was tuned in when they made that announcement. Um, and then it was uh, June of 2019 um, when Goon actually pinged uh, the members of my project um, that I had worked on for um, his blockchain course, um, asking if we could add him to the GitHub because he was doing a hackathon at Cornell for a weekend and wanted to keep working on it. Um, and so I, of course, added him to the GitHub and asked, uh, if there was anything I could do to help, like let me know. I could would certainly um, be happy to assist. And he's like, "Well, how about you come join my company?" No way. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a, a pretty cool email to receive um, <laughs> from me. So I, I then interviewed after that um, and joined in August of twenty nine. Uh, sorry, I interviewed in August and joined in September of twenty twenty. Got it. Well, sorry, so, twenty nineteen. Getting all these years confused now. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> Um, so then whenever you came on board, did you, you pardon me, immediately started working on the bridge? Uh, not quite. Um, I was immediately kind of working within SGX um, and some different projects that um, still haven't been fully announced yet. Um, so we won't go into that too much, but uh, definitely exploring the, the possibilities of leveraging SGX um, within the blockchain space from the start. Um, and also assisting out, assisting where I could with uh, the platform um, sitting next to, back when we had an office uh, pre-COVID uh, in Williamsburg. Uh, it was the early days sitting next to Dan and Stephen. Um, so 
Yeah, um, it's been a, a quite a ride so far. And how big was um, the team that built the bridge? Uh, so the team that built the bridge was, uh, well, I don't want to leave into it out. There's probably 12 people in total. Um, so the backend team was mostly uh, myself, Bernard Wong, um, who is a professor at the University of Waterloo. Connor Leary uh, was another huge uh, contributor on the back end. Um, Gergay worked on the front end. Um, we obviously had a ton of DevOps support, ton of biz dev support, marketing. Um, it was a kind of whole organizational effort um, that we kind of owned as a team from start to finish. And how much of it is uh, smart contract driven? That's an interesting question. I'd say probably, as far as bridges go, very little of it is within smart contracts um, in terms of actual deployed smart contracts on an EVM chain. Um, so those the smart contracts are limited to the wrapped token contracts that live on our C chain. Um, so right now, there's no smart contracts on Ethereum. Um, the Enclave itself acts as a smart contract in um, some sort of way. Uh, I, I kind of use that analogy pretty frequently. Um, it's an off-chain smart contract. Uh, you interact with it by sending a transaction on Ethereum. Um, and by sending a transaction on Ethereum, you invoke the Enclave code. Um, and then the Enclave interacts with the smart contract on Avalanche. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a, a smart a cross-chain smart contract, uh, but the actual on-chain smart contracts are limited to ERC-20 implementations on the C-chain. Got it. And so then um, could you give me like a, a pros and a con for a Warden sort of SGX type setup versus a Lock uh, Mint relayer kind of like if you had to sell me on both of them, can you give me pros and cons for both? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to be clear, we're actually also a lock and mint um, architecture. Okay. Um, so it. the Enclave is locking the funds on Ethereum um, and minting them on Avalanche. Um, and then you unwrap the fund. When you unwrap the funds, they um, are burned on the C chain and then released on Ethereum. Um, so that type of architecture is, um, that type of paradigm is uh, very similar between our new bridge and the Avalanche Ethereum bridge. Um, that existed previously. Um, the pros of the AB, I think, are that it's uh, easier to use. Um, it was slightly the so I guess from the from the participation standpoint of a relayer versus a warden. Um, the wardens have much lower overhead because they don't need to send transactions on chain. Um, so as part of the AEB each relayer would need to uh, contribute to the multi-sig that was happening on Ethereum and on Avalanche um, by actually sending those transactions and having them be included in the blocks. Um, and that created, one, a lot of cost for the relayers because they were sending transactions and that's not cheap on Ethereum. Um, and I mean, there's dynamic fees coming up on Avalanche, but they also incur uh, Avox transaction fees for sure. Um, Two, it creates a lot of delay because you don't know how fast those transactions are going to be confirmed. Um, there could be a spike in gas prices. Um, and 
it just generally kind of slows the process down waiting for those confirmations. Um, and in contrast, so, so that's the AEB relayer. In contrast, the warden uh, for the new avalanche bridge um, is only really monitoring each network and sending its approvals um, to the enclave over um, an encrypted channel, uh, but not sending any on-chain transactions. Um, so it's much lower overhead um, in terms of speed and in terms of cost to be a warden rather than to be a AEB relayer. Um, and having the, uh, sorry, having the enclave pro, um, really coordinate between the wardens allowed for us to speed up that process as well. Got it. And so, um, are there what what is the sweet spot with regards to the number of wardens and the M of N or however you would want to phrase it? What what is the the sweet spot? That's a good question. Um, I don't know. It's really uh, a little bit open-ended there in terms of security risks, uh, in terms of, um, I mean, yeah, it really just comes down to, to security. Um, on one hand, the more the better. Um, if you had a 90 out of 100 multi-sig, I think that would be great uh, because very unlikely that 90 parties would collude. Uh, but that also creates a lot of overhead in terms of getting 90 approvals for every transaction. Um, even in our new setup, that'd be a lot of communication overhead, um, even though you're not having transactions on chain for each approval. Um, the, yeah, the, the current state is three or four. Um, I think ideally in the future, we could um, hopefully get more wardens in there. I think maybe seven of 10 could be a sweet spot. Um, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting question there in terms of like, ideally, it would kind of anyone would be able to be a warden um, so you could participate in these cross-chain transactions in an open decentralized network um, but that creates so much overhead that it's uh, really inhibits the feasibility and the usability um, and the cost of, of those bridges so i think yeah if i if i had to like have my pick i'd say seven of ten is probably a pretty good sweet spot but um i'm definitely open to hearing other people's arguments there as well Sure, because then you've obviously got to find the organizations, which is just as challenging as the code really is just the social aspect of everything, simply because there's just, there's not really a ton of super competent uh, people in the, how's, how can I say that? There's plenty of competent people, but the blockchain space in general is just understaffed. It's still one of those, you know, it's, Definitely understaffed. <laughs> yeah, despite the fact that it's it's not nascent, I wouldn't call the technology nascent anymore. It's clearly mature, and there's you know we're ten years deep into the revolution, but it's still just so much opportunity for people in this space because there's just so much going on. Things are moving so fast. There's so much money on the line and so many stakeholders and um, the potential to have an impact with your work. I always say if you're looking for a for a place where you can have an oversized impact with your work, right? Like there's a thousand different things you can work on and in some of them, you're not gonna make a difference at all. And then in some of them, you can just have a crazy radical uh, impact. And to me, the blockchain space still, despite being 10 years um, old, which is a long time in the field of, you know, innovative technology, right? Like, you know, Moore's law is kind of like the, um, 
the the label that we apply to everything but obviously moore's law is very specific about you know integrated circuits on transistors but it's kind of like a catch-all phrase that we just throw out there for you know the pace of change is accelerating and computer computing price performance is doubling every so many months or whatever but there's there's a thousand different moore's law type scenarios or you know phenomenon that apply to many 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 different uh, fields of study in computer science other than integrated circuits but we say Moore's law. So the reason I mentioned that is if you think about 10 years with regards to Moore's law, I believe when Gordon Moore first put the dots on the uh, page, I think it was 18 months originally was uh, Moore's law, but Ray Kurzweil, who I'm a big fan of the guy who wrote uh, the singularity is in the air and the age of intelligent machines and the age of spiritual machines and live long enough to live forever. He's like, I think, uh, one of only six civilians on the Army Science Advisory Board. I believe he has sev literally 17 honorary doctorates, which I'm sure most of those are just, you know, uh, institutions congratulating him. But he's one of the main engineers at uh, Google. And um, he points out in his book, The Singularity is Near, uh, that the price performance doubling that was originally 18 months as defined by Gordon Moore at Intel is now like 11 months. So, you know, the pace of change is accelerating. And so if you think about it in that regard, you know, 10 years is like 10 turns of the screw with regards to Moore's law or this, you know, doubling of technology. And so when you think about it in that way, the blockchain is really kind of old, right? If you think about 10 years, because so the way I think about it is like the iPhone came out in 2008 or 2009, I believe, Android as well. And so did Bitcoin, right? So they both sort of came out at the same time. And if you think about which one of them had a bigger impact on the world, I would say it's mobile, right? Because every single person in the world has a mobile device now. And, you know, we've all, if you think about all of the extra phones we've got around and all of the different iPads, we've all got like 10 computers or something like that in our lives. And the blockchain technology has not really had an impact on the same way. Obviously, that's kind of a rough analogy. There are two different technology stacks, but I mentioned it simply to sort of come back to my original thought, and that is, you know, the blockchain is now 10 or 11 years old and there's been all of this progress, uh, both directly in the blockchain space and then in, you know, just computer science in general. But there's still um, a huge amount of opportunity in this space because despite the fact that it's been 10 years, it's still incredibly hard to find super competent people. Um, whenever you were at Cornell, were you involved in the blockchain society or any of the social movement? No, um, I wasn't actually. I, I wish I was. Um, I think those are also just getting started uh, around that same time. Um, but I um, did not participate in that during undergrad. But yeah, absolutely. The, it's been very interesting to see like just the past two years worth of growth uh, within the space. I think more mm -hmm. laws, Moore's law definitely applies. Um, mm. Maybe different uh, exponents or sure coefficients. So, I, i'm right. not sure all the details there but um <laughs> it's uh yeah i think crypto is kind of old in that aspect but at the same time i think we also have had um the rate of development and the rate of innovation i think um has kind of kept pace uh, maybe the adoption isn't quite there um, but i'm hopeful it's uh in the future still so there's there's a ton of possibilities uh and yeah, as you said, like there's there's so much to do uh, that you can have that oversized impact. Um, but then it also makes it really difficult to find people to to work with because everyone kind of has their own uh, 
passion within the space uh, or their own project that they're working on. Um, and everyone's kind of overcommitted already. So, boy, that's for sure. Yeah, one of the things. So, um, I've been in the blockchain space now. I, I, I've got my first Bitcoin in 2011. So, I feel like a super OG, right? I've seen a bunch of different phases of the Bitcoin world. Um, in 2014, around the time Ethereum was uh, being fleshed out, I was already, I had a, a vision for a startup called Gitcoin which of course now there's a hugely successful project called Gitcoin. But at the time I wanted to do developer services for Bitcoin because already at the time I sort of understood um, like there's ultimately going to be SDKs. There's ultimately going to be cloud services. It's like the same infrastructure that exists for any other kind of successful tech stack is going to ultimately emerge in the Bitcoin space. And then, of course, I was uh, fortunate enough to um, experience like the Ethereum crowd sell. And then I was also there for um, for the scaling debate of Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And I was a big advocate of Bitcoin Cash. And I had a, a Bitcoin Cash startup that got acquired by Bitcoin.com. And um, having gone through all of that, to me, it seems like um, overnight the blockchain went mainstream. So, you know, in the past year, like I would say, compared to what I've witnessed over the past 10 years, to me, the blockchain has gone mainstream. And the analogy I've used many, many times, so if you've heard it and it sounds tired, I apologize, but it, it does, it's how I feel about it, is um, whenever the web was first born, in the mid 90s, the mid to late 90s, um, the computer scientists, the hackers, the academics, the entrepreneurs, the people who worked in the industry appreciated that the web was going to be uh, have a radical impact on on society, right? So as soon as the web was launched, there were people who were like, oh, wow, this is going to be crazy huge. And so a bunch of money rushed into the web and we had the dot-com boom um, because a lot of people knew that it was going to change everything. But as people started playing around with the technology, they realized that, hey, you know what? I don't think this technology is totally mature. Um, it's certainly like the user experience of using a website in 1998 is not as good as using a native app in 1998, right? If you're using a Macintosh or Windows, the native app is much more powerful. And so a lot of the money rushed out of the web and the dot-com bubble popped, of course, notoriously in 2000, 2001. But the people who saw the vision continued to work very hard. And then around 2004, 2005, there was this coming of age moment when AJAX emerged and Web 2.0. AJAX stands for Asynchronous JavaScript and XML. And from the Web 2.0 movement, we ended up getting, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter and Flickr and the, the uh, beginnings of the HTML5 movement and modern CSS and so all of the web that we think about today, the web evolving from like a document and scientific type platform that emerged from CERN, you know, famously Tim Berners-Lee was a physicist or he was a computer scientist working at CERN, which is the big atom smasher in Switzerland. And, and um, originally the web was just a place for scientists to share documents. It, the, Tim Berners-Lee actually pushed back on the idea of an image tag in the very beginning. They very, very much did not perceive it as being like an application platform but it ultimately became an application platform and a big part of that was this coming of age moment with ajax and web 2.0 and to me um, that's what avalanche consensus feels like to me now granted there's plenty of other exciting uh, blockchain projects 
But avalanche consensus is a very, very significant milestone. And the reason being that similar to the web, um, people have known from the very beginning that the blockchain and the blockchain technology stack was had the potential to be incredibly um, transformative. But we ran into this wall of Nakamoto consensus, just not kind of being mature enough to do this entire class of use cases, such as point of sale, right? So, you know, you want to go in and famously buy a coffee with crypto. Well, um, Bitcoin had something called zero confirmation, which was removed whenever the Bitcoin core developers added replace by fee, but it was returned on in Bitcoin cash. So there are flavors of Bitcoin where you can effectively make a transaction and it settles, if you will, nearly instantly. So, you know, you could buy your coffee and leave. But that doesn't exist in the main Bitcoin, you know, BTC world for what it's worth. And even <clears throat> Ethereum with its relatively fast blocks, 15 or 20 second blocks, even that uh, boxes you out of a whole uh, set of um, application opportunities. So, for example, like uh, traditional finance exchanges, you know, these different firms will actually put their hardware in different places around the world simply to get a, you know, fractions of a second shaved off of different web requests because it gives them such a competitive advantage. And so when you're dealing with something like Ethereum, where the blocks are every 15 or 20 seconds, it's just not fast enough. But Avalanche Consensus, which gives you sub-second, completely immutable and irreversible finality, really just opens up the door for all of these use cases from decentralized exchanges, which can compete with centralized exchange user experiences, all the way to like point of sale. So you can now use, you know, crypto as peer-to-peer uh, -peer cash. So um, despite, you know, there, again, there are a lot of exciting things happening in the blockchain and there have been for a while, but to me, uh, Avalanche Consensus really does represent this coming of age moment, similar to Ajax with the web, which ultimately uh, enabled web 2.0 with Flickr and Facebook and Twitter and HTML5 and CSS and the modern version of JavaScript, all of those things emerged once the web matured and had a coming of age moment. And to me, it feels like we're undergoing that right now with the blockchain. And that's why I say in the past year, really the blockchain went mainstream. So we had things like uh, huge uh, thought leaders like Elon Musk entering the space. And so the reason I think that Elon Musk entering the space is very significant is because to me, Elon is like the current Steve Jobs. And by that, I mean, he is the person who um, the zeitgeist, like the, the, the way the society is sort of viewing things, he has filled that role of Steve Jobs, where he can come in and he can sort of bless a technology and the mom and pop investor of the world are going to kind of automatically be turned on to that technology simply because Elon Musk has so much social clout that he can come in and say, hey, Dogecoin is going to be huge. And all of a sudden, Dogecoin is in the minds of all of these <laughs> investors around the world. For better or for worse, of course. But yeah. yeah, for better or worse. And to me, I feel like um, what I suspect will happen is what, what happens to most people who enter the blockchain space. Um, everybody kind of goes through the same sort of life cycle and evolution where you show up and you realize peer-to-peer -peer payments is very transformative. So being able to send any amount of money to anybody anywhere in the world, no borders, basically free, basically instant, pardon me, is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And if you've ever tried to move money internationally, you know what a nightmare all that is. But then immediately you sort of hit the wall of 
peer-to-peer payments is cool, but you know what else is cool is tokens are cool. And no, you know what else is cool is smart contracts are cool. And all this other stuff that Ethereum is offering is very cool. And you don't really get that stuff out of the box. Go ahead if you uh, want to, if you have- Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that the coolest thing is going to be when people are doing, well, using app, using blockchain applications where they don't even know that they're using blockchain applications. I think that's the, uh, the and I totally agree with the progression. Mm -hmm. You're like, first you do payments. And it's like, wow, that, that's kind of cool. Like I can send money uh, with no intermediary and mm -hmm. with all the properties you just described. And then all the DeFi applications that exist today and now NFTs and NFT marketplaces. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably the first time where people uh, they, they probably know that they're still interacting with a blockchain or with crypto on some level, um, mm -hmm. but it's it's inching in the direction where Web3 is quickly just going to become the web. Um, sure. And I, I say inching because uh, I feel like working at Ava Labs and on Avalanche, we're kind of on the front lines there. Uh, but true. when you take a step back, it's, it's not inching. It's like <laughs> full out sprint. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is. It's going to happen. Um, and I think when it reaches the point where Web3 is just the web and where mm -hmm. like you're interacting with an app on your phone, but you're also actually like interacting with the blockchain behind the scenes and you don't even need to think about that it's a blockchain or you don't even need to think about that your transaction needs to be confirmed sure. or uh, where all of that is abstracted away. And um, I think that's the, the point that we're going to get to. And I think that will be the coolest point. And that and that deserves a hat tip to Connor, who um, would be here tonight. But as I said, he's with his family. So we yeah, uh, go buy some NFTs. Yeah, exactly. The NFT marketplace that um, Connor, again, just gets such credit for. He did such a great job architecting that and being the lead to bring that across the finish line. Um, it has been a slog and um, he's been clocking them hours. So props to him. But one of the great things about that whole user experience is that web3 stuff really is hidden away and today if you go and use something like OpenSea or any one of these other sort of popular nft marketplaces <clears throat> pardon me the barrier to entry is relatively high you know getting crypto going to coinbase doing kyc buying some crypto waiting for two weeks or whatever not for long though yeah and using metamask knowing all that stuff it's challenging but using this new um platform that was built and it's one of the reasons that um, I really do believe that Avalanche is going to be the premier um, platform for launching licensed NFTs is because of all the work we put in to build this system to where it abstracts it away and you can show up and you can use your credit card instantly and you can be buying and selling NFTs in a matter of minutes instead of a matter of weeks. You're right. Like one of the reasons that the iPhone and is so powerful is because you can give it to a little kid and everybody's seen, you know, two-year-olds swiping and tapping. It's because the the mechanics and the user experience are so natural and idiomatic to the way humans work that it's incredibly obvious. So despite the fact that that touch screen is like 10,000 layers of abstraction above, you know, all of the stuff that's happening behind it, um, from the cloud to security to everything, really speaks to the power of abstraction and user experience and how um, that is the special sauce. The technology is great, but the user experience and the um, being able to abstract everything away is really where, where the special sauce is. And so I agree with you, like the most exciting part about the blockchain revolution is when it becomes no, no longer exciting, right? Whenever it's kind of just totally yep. abstracted away. Yeah, got it. 
So um, let's talk about like, um, what do you think in general about about Ava Labs, man? What are some of the um, the pros and the cons of stuff we've accomplished from the mainnet? Like, what is our biggest win, and what would you do differently if you could do it differently? Yeah, absolutely. And I do have to run here in a minute, but yeah, of course, happy to talk about yeah. uh, Ava Labs. Uh, I think the biggest win, uh, at least on the day to day, is uh, the people that you get to interact with. Uh, I feel like we just have a lot of thought leaders and a lot of innovation going on within the company. Um, and being within that environment always kind of pushes you to um, have new ideas and to bounce them, like perfect people to bounce them off. Um, and just the daily interactions there um, mm -hmm. are invaluable, I think, in terms of both making our offerings better, but also just innovating and advancing the blockchain tech as a whole. Um, in terms of the biggest breakthroughs, um, I think it's definitely just has to be um, avalanche consensus. Um, don't want to, to put anything uh, close to that level. Uh, and I think subnets are gonna be what's uh, the next huge phase where that people may or may not see coming, but it's sure. definitely coming. Um, and uh, once we get there, it's just gonna be transformative, I think, in terms of the possibilities that it opens up for different organizations, different industries to leverage blockchain technology um, in a way that fits their needs exactly, but also interacts with uh, all the other portions of the network um, as they see fit. Um, and that customizability um, and yeah, really that customizability and interoperability within the avalanche subnets that will be created is going to be really exciting to see. Got it. And so what do you think then about, same question, but to the blockchain space in general, what do you think are some of the pros and cons and where do you think this is going to play out? Like, where do you see this five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line? Oh, that's, that's a difficult. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I think at the current rate of adoption, I think there's going to be so many applications that people haven't even thought of yet. That will probably be the biggest ones. Um, mm. Like, we're probably in the, the MySpace days of social media on, on that yeah. scale. Um, so trying to predict the next Facebook or the like uh, is kind of difficult to do beforehand. Uh, but I think there's so much in the, uh, definitely like with the whole NFT space growing now, but also using NFTs as credentials or sure. um, really real world objects. Like why couldn't a car be an NFT? Why do I need sure. to have a VIN number? Like what is a VIN number even? I, I don't know. Um, sure, you're right. So, so I think there's like so many points, uh, so, so many places where we ha can leverage this technology that we're currently building, but we just haven't gotten to it yet. Um, what will actually be the killer app. Uh, I think that's anyone's best guess. Um, yeah. Got it. Okay. So, um, and then what do you think about, you mentioned uh, whenever you first discovered Bitcoin, whenever you first, did you read the white paper like early on? Is that how you got exposed to Bitcoin? You said yeah, your, dad, no. your dad told you about it, right? Yeah. My dad told me about Bitcoin. Uh, I think I read the white paper and I did rough understanding of it at the time, uh, but then definitely reread the white paper um, for Goon's blockchain course. Um, right. That was the first paper we read and went into depth on. Uh, so that was when I really kind of- Did you appreciate that it was a significant document when you read it? 
Uh, definitely the, the second time there. Once we had the discussion uh, with Goon and with everyone else in the class of like what specific aspects of the paper were so novel, um, that's when it really clicked, I think, to crack open the, the shell there and start digging in. What did you think of Satoshi or what do you think of Satoshi? I don't have much of an opinion on Satoshi, honestly. Um, I think it's admirable that um, he's been actually able to maintain his anonymity uh, mm. because, I mean, I, I just can't think of how that could even be possible. Like if, if I tried to write a paper under a pseudonym and actually see it through and also not um, expose my identity at all, not only is it difficult from a personal point of view of like wanting to take credit for your work, it's sure. difficult from a like operations point of view. Um, and it's incredible. Especially because there's so many people, there's been so many people who've tried to find him. Yeah, They've exactly. He did yeah. a very, very good job at, uh, at not only creating the space, but um, keeping his identity unknown. Um, and I think it makes for a really cool story that uh, we'll be telling for many years to come, hopefully. Do you think it was one person or a team? Uh, I think one person. Uh, definitely working with a few others um, at the time. I mean, similar to, I mean, I know Team Rocker was working with Goon and Kevin before they uh, published that, and Ted, of course, uh, before they published their paper. Um, so I think some people probably had ins before the mm -hmm. paper was dropped or before uh, the first Bitcoin client was published. But um, I think it was one person. Got it. Uh, yeah, I've always like to me, it's just interesting that nobody has came forward to even talk about code review or anything. You know, the code was not bulletproof. There was there was a minting bug in Bitcoin as well, but it was just really darn good. And to be pulled together by one person, obviously, Satoshi would have been a polymath because he was able to touch on so many different skills. But just, you know, one person producing a, a code base like that is just so, so, so significant. And um like like you said, it's it's not human nature for someone not only to not take the credit, but then to also be sitting on you know however many billions of dollars that is today, an insane an yeah. insane fortune to have never touched anything, not one single time. Uh, he did some transactions, but there's all those blocks, uh, those fifty Bitcoin reward blocks that are just sitting there, and to have never touched them is just uh, not like what most humans would do, right? Not. I will say. Uh, have entertained the possibility that Satoshi's goon. And, uh, I've, I've, I feel like I know goon well enough now that mm -hmm. like I would have been able to crack him open. But yeah, uh, sure. Like I've saw, I have seen goon on uh, articles like who is Satoshi top ten. I've oh, definitely yeah, seen him. Yeah, he I've published seen... a proof of work paper in what two thousand three. Like it's yeah. he has all the mm -hmm. credentials there. Yes. So he created something called Karma. If you guys don't know, go Google it. Goon created the first proof of work type system uh, called Karma in 2003. Yeah, you're right. Six years before Satoshi created Bitcoin. So, you know, who was around solving those kind of problems that early on? Surely not that many people. And then in terms of being able to write the academic paper, but also right. develop the code and then selfish mining paper. Yeah. So. yeah and the DAO hack. But uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. man. Well, it's been an hour. Yeah, it's been an hour and I want to be respectful of your time. It's Friday evening, so I think we can call it. But um, 
I, I want to invite you back whenever we get a chance for Connor to come because Connor had a ton of questions related to the bridge that would have been much more technical than we went tonight. And I know there's going to be a lot of people who are disappointed that we didn't get to deep dive with uh, all the questions for Connor. So I just want to put out the uh, invitation to you to come back again in the future and we can yeah, have the conversation again. Love to. Yeah, anytime. Awesome. All right, Michael, thank you so much. Um, thank you, everybody, for watching. This is Gabriel Cardona. This has been another episode of The Subnet Show. We will catch you next week. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. See you, Gabriel. Yeah, cheers, man.